2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network Podcast. I'm Roberto Mazza, the host of the Jerusalem and Podcast. And today, for the Middle Eastern Studies series, my guests are Karen Sanchez, who is currently associate professor at Leiden University, moving shortly uh, to uh, Groningen University, as she will be the next chair of the Middle Eastern Studies Department. And my other guest is uh, Sari Zananiri, who is currently a postdoctoral researcher at Leiden University. Now, with them, we're going to talk about an edited book, which uh, was published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2021, and it's available as open access. European Cultural Diplomacy and Arab Christians in Palestine, 1918-1948, Between Contention and Connection. Now, this book is also part of a series of other works uh, connected to a funded project, uh, Crossroads, which we will talk about that uh, later. But first of all, Karen Sari, welcome.
1: Good afternoon. Thank you, Roberto, for welcoming us.
2: Yes, thank you indeed. So, the, to begin with, I would like to ask you something about yourself. So, perhaps starting with Karen. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and the same question then for uh, Sari?
1: Uh, it's very easy. I'm a historian. <laughs> and uh, I started with uh, uh, one PhD on the missionary challenges in the south of Palestine during the mandate period with Bernard et Berger in Paris. And the second one was dealing with the relation between language identification and education in Jerusalem. Um, so I've been working mainly with historians until 2015, I would say, and then I came across more sociolinguistics um, colleagues in Leiden University, in CNRS, where I kept contact. And so I came from these two mainly uh, research uh, backgrounds. Uh, when I was in Bethlehem and then I can tell you how I came to a crossroad uh, idea, uh, research uh, proposal and then a grant
3: And um, I did a PhD in fine arts, so I have a background as a, an arts practitioner really um, and I think for me, you know, coming to this project around cultural diplomacy was a lot about thinking about the ways in which culture affects so much of the other sort of aspects of life. Um, In my PhD, I was looking a lot at photography um, and the ways in which photography can... um, speak to sort of broader political narratives. So I was thinking a lot about how Western photography has a confluence with Zionist narrative uh, and uh, thinking about the ways in which kind of culture functions in terms of remediating Palestine, you know, this very sort of um, important religious place to the world, but also thinking about the ways in which some of these um, modes of religious imaging actually kind of um don't, don't really reflect the realities of a uh, multilingual and uh, multicultural society and, um, you know, the sort of many diversities of communities that were, were living there. And uh, I think that's kind of how I came to sort of really um, be thinking a lot more about the kind of context of cultural diplomacy within, within, um, within the, the, the sort of the, the broader context of uh, Crossroads and the activities that we've been working on in the last few years.
2: We will certainly talk about extensively about the concept of cultural diplomacy, but I I just want to mention uh, for all of the listeners that Sari is also an excellent artist, and in fact, uh, some of his pictures are great, and they can be found online. And I'll make sure that also uh, his personal website will be posted so that people can actually uh, enjoy uh, those works. Now, I want to move to the the book and ask about... uh, the genesis of the project. In fact, the very introduction of of the book itself is called the genesis of uh, the project dedicated to European cultural diplomacy. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about how the book was originally conceived and also how did the project develop?
1: The very first uh, idea was uh, back in 2014-15 when I was in the Bethlehem University looking for other types of uh, archives dealing with education. And I came across the um, LRAD and I was very struck by all these uh, associations around cultural activity in the countryside by young men of the 30s, so during the Arab Revolt. I kept those, you know, I, I wrote down what I was reading, and I discussed with a very dear colleague of mine, Helene Muir van den at that time, who were involved in another uh, project, Arabic and its Alternative, and I was telling her I was really struck by the use of cultural association to fight the British via literacy activities. So I dig a bit when I had time, but I was involved in something else. And I found out that actually those associations ended up by being a very important Arab student association across the region. And so being in Jerusalem, I remember, and and, uh, Bethlehem and also Nablus at that time, I was discussing the name I found from these students and trying to look into the networks And via this idea, I discussed more and more the use of cultural association. And I came up with this proposal, Crossroads, and then this has another history. But I think that the the moment I decided to dig a bit was to inquire more about this idea of influencing and fighting via culture. And then when I was... uh, Granted, I was looking for people who would have a very complementary approach. So I was delighted to meet Sari and to make him come to Leiden.
3: (laughs) And it's been a pleasure to be here ever since. Thank you, Karen. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, sort of coming into the project as a postdoc and uh, all of this amazing sort of thinking uh, and conceptualization that Karen had done Kind of coming into it uh, i i think um you know in many i mean it sort of definitely shaped the kind of the parameters of the project but i think one of the things that i found most interesting was um thinking again you know kind of going back to this sort of idea of photography and how this creates links, transnational links, I think, you know, thinking about these transnational links that kind of come out of a lot of these religious frameworks and institutional frameworks that are kind of embedded in the book, I think it became a very interesting exercise in thinking through um, how how frameworks can kind of, um, how the framework of religion can kind of be a connector as much as a sort of a moment of contention, which... I suppose is, is somewhat reflected in the, the book's title. You know, I think, um, you know, when we go through the various chapters in the book, there are, uh, there are clearly success stories of cultural diplomacy and, and, and stories of, you know, failure at the same time. And I think this is a very sort of multidirectional process, which I think, um, uh, you know, it, it sort of speaks to the complexity of the field.
1: And I think being um, involved in different type of archival work, we quickly came to realize that even in institutions that are very central and that some of our colleagues may perceive as unidirectional institutions like the Vatican, some institutions were devoted Uh, to address, you know, cultural aspects of local populations, but not only devoted to that after the First World War, but uh, mainly uh, indigenous and local actors, whether within this institution or outside, had a huge agenda and were also very influential. So I think that's the genesis of the project, going way beyond an idea of unidirectional Uh, Cold War idea of the cultural diplomacy and try to envisage the entanglement and multifaceted aspects.
2: Now, the book is divided into three parts, 18 chapters, uh, with the addition of an introduction and an epilogue, and central to the volume is obviously the concept of cultural diplomacy. Uh, Would you be able to tell us your definition or how... You know this definition evolved throughout the book and how also perhaps scholars engage with the uh, term cultural diplomacy?
1: Mm, there's no unique definition. I think we have to underline that from the very beginning because Leiden University is involved, for example, in what is called by my colleague uh, Giles Scott Smith, the new diplomatic history. And they they are pushing also to look into other way cultural diplomacy has evolved. So um, taking into account, I think, several types of historiography, where you have, you know, Charlotte Fouché, for example, uh, trying to define cultural influence and how this cultural influence is seen in different type of actors of diplomacy, whether they are state actors or not, taking into account new diplomatic approach, and taking into account as well our own background of historian and cultural studies uh, specialists, looking into this uh, idea of going beyond a state definition and how this cultural influence was remodeled and rewritten uh, locally, Uh, we can refer, you know, to uh, three main fields of cultural diplomacy definition. But I think one of the conclusions is that it's a very complex and entangled concept, and the discussion of the concept itself was one of the goal of the book, and I think we succeeded to, to achieve that. You have um, some of the authors who immediately understood when coming and discussing with us a, a more uh, top-down approach that they accepted, you know, to challenge while writing their papers. Other immediately understood uh, a more local definition of what cultural influence and agency can be. And then you had cultural studies uh, specialists who saw uh, the idea of uh, reception, production, consumption. So I think the main idea we took from this book is that there are various definitions, but all of them are dealing with the idea of production, consumption, influence at different levels.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think um, many of the authors in the and contributors in the volume, you know, they've they've kind of spoken to uh, various degrees about what cultural diplomacy kind of means to them and defined that. But I think um, you know, certainly the process of kind of um, discussion that led to uh, the volume and uh, some of the workshops that we'd had earlier on in Crossroads. I think one of the um, most appealing ways of thinking about cultural diplomacy really comes from um david clark's uh, cultural studies approach to it and i think you know this really uh the thing about that uh, approach is is that it's not so much a definition of cultural diplomacy as a sort of um, an analysis of all of these networks and i think this is a really valuable way of thinking about cultural diplomacy um, because it does have so many different actors in it, and in the context of Palestine, there's no um, there's no state that reflects the actors that we're discussing. You know, um, in, in this case, Arab Christian Palestinians. So, in some ways, thinking about the sort of networks that that function, whether they're sort of supranational networks, whether they're kind of commercial networks, I, I think I think this kind of can yield a lot of valuable historical knowledge. And and I think this is also partially why we structured the book the way we did, um, with a section looking at Palestinian cultural diplomacy, a section looking at mixed forums and a section looking at European cultural diplomacy. And I think this was, you know, the structure of the book was very much an attempt to sort of think about the ways in which cultural diplomacy flows, flows backwards and forwards. And, um, you know, I think... Uh, the ways in which Palestine is often couched in slightly more popular terms is that, that, that people didn't have a lot of agency, but actually what we see is that there was quite a lot of agency, and um, you know, uh, even within this sort of messy political period of the British mandate, people were still um, working within these sort of networks that they had access to to try and um, influence people.
2: It's certainly very clear from the structure of the book that uh, the the usual and very old stereotypes that essentially depicted the Palestinians, as you said, uh, without any agency is challenged, and it demonstrates that actually there was uh, a clear agency on the ground and the Palestinians were uh, sort of uh, producing their own uh, uh, present and projecting their own future. And here I want to ask you about, uh, you know, sort of... uh, the question why you looked at the Christians and um, since the book is very much looking at Arab Christians in Palestine, as I said earlier in the introduction between 1918 and 1948, and I was wondering, is there a case for a different cultural diplomacy towards other communities in Palestine, for instance, uh, Muslims and Jews, or it was just a, a sort of a practical necessity to focus on one group?
1: Hmm. That's a fundamental question. And I must say that we have a very connected approach. Uh, I need to say that because as an historian, I came, you know, from the background of analyzing this relation in the south of Palestine. So for me, of course, the Jewish community, the Muslim majority in Hebron and the tiny, you know, missionary Christian were all involved in this very complex uh, configuration of the mandate. So our goal with this book was absolutely not to target randomly because it would be, I don't know, easier. But we we have several... Um, Context elements that allow us, I think, from a scientific background, to target these are Christian, but in a very connected and comparative approach. So, for example, the the fact that there there is a lack of uh, Ottoman cultural investment in in minorities, and we all know the the millet system. Um, favoured uh, this uh, significant cultural autonomy. I mean, the work of Bernard Berger or Fogel underlined that uh, before uh, this book. And, and so this is one type of justification. The other one is the one I was, I was uh, working with for several years. It's this idea that the growth of Western schools I mean, you have the French one, you have the Russian schools uh, in Jerusalem, the Italian one, but not only, were in fact geared mainly at Christian uh, communities, though they were accepting uh, Jewish and and Muslim people. A third type of um, explanation is the, the tendency to hail from urban rather than rural uh, background. And so this was also a way of, you know, Christian to be more active. And of course, this was, sorry said, facilitated by the network of these uh, Arab-Christian, whether it was mercantile or professional uh, network. And I'm thinking of uh, another one. It's the fact that clearly the British policy in the mandate in Palestine Addressed directly Jews and Muslims. So when the British are saying Arab, we all know by now that they meant Muslims more than Christian, and that's why we came up with a very rich archival, you know, uh, database, and at the same time huge uh, gaps in the analysis of this cultural diplomacy. And then, of course, sorry, we add to that the many. Mini- aspects uh, that are dealing with more uh, cultural studies aspect of this Arab uh, Christian, for example.
3: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think um, I think Karen has kind of really encapsulated many of the sort of reasons why we sort of deal with Christianity. But I also think that within a sort of a broader narrative of some of the cultural institutes that were being set up in Palestine in this late Ottoman and British Mandate period and were very much in operation during the British Mandate is that so many of them were related to Christianity. Um, So there was also, you know, part of this relationship to Christianity, whether you're thinking about it from the perspective of uh, facilitating tourism like uh, institutions like Notre Dame or... uh, the Austrian hospice or whether you're sort of thinking about it from a scholarly perspective like, uh, you know, institutions like Ecole Biblique or the British School of Archaeology in Jerusalem or, you know, these many, many different archaeological and ethnographic institutes that are being set up, is that, that, you know, you already have this kind of interest in Christianity and, you know, I suppose that part of, you know, part of this kind of relationship of these institutes and the sort of funding that's coming from the various states that are setting them up is also related to outreach within Christian communities and uh, so we get this sort of aspect of you know uh, not just missionizing but also sort of uh, you know carving out these sort of spheres of, of 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 cultural affinity and and that's not to say that this is unique to Christians you know certainly we clearly we, we clearly see uh you know Protestant affinities with uh, with Judaism as well in in other aspects, or you know uh, a sort of transnational kind of pan pan Islamic cultural affinities. But I think w- within the context of Palestine, I think that the role of Christianity is just so very strong in shaping you know so many of the social forces that were present. Um, and I think um, you know in some ways, you know, given that Christians. Uh, were you know uh, numerically quite small in comparison to the Muslim ma- majority. I think there was also sort of a much larger cultural impact that they had within the context of the British mandate that that, that kind of overrides their sort of um, the, the, the sort of numeric population.
2: And actually, talking about uh, um, the British mandate, I was wondering how did cultural diplomacy develop under the British?
3: It, do you mean in a sort of a general sense, or in terms of British cultural diplomacy, or...? Uh, in-
2: perhaps in general, I mean, looking at the context, uh, I mean, I guess, obviously, you know, still the French institutions, Austrian institutions, they kept working, uh, you know, their own way, but also they probably have been influenced by the new uh, uh, social political setting after the British took over uh, at the end of World War One.
3: I mean, certainly, I mean, there's quite a few chapters that deal with archaeology, for instance, and I think this is a really interesting kind of moment in terms of archaeology and, uh, you know, the sort of the ways in which archaeology, not not, not, not that we, we sort of deal with museology in the book, but, but I think, uh, you know, there's this sort of relationship towards how these uh, archaeological institutes are kind of shaping this kind of museological image of Jerusalem and of Palestine more generally, you know, all of these dig sites that are kind of springing up. Um, And I think, you know, certainly, uh, I mean, for instance, uh, Sarah Irving's paper uh, in the book, you know, looks at the role of Christians within the Palestine Archaeological Museum. And I think there we can kind of see this very interesting impact. On the one hand, we've got this, this new museum that's being set up that's kind of got an Ottoman predecessor but is kind of being couched as distinctly British, uh it's not generally servicing local populations it's more about visitation and and kind of building tourism and things like that but then we have these sort of attempts to to sort of um you know couch some sort of palestinian narrative in the ways in which uh guidebooks are being written by these christian palestinians by the ways in which you know uh sites are managed and and thinking about these sorts of history so i think you know uh, I, I, and I guess with the other sort of big context of the British Mandate, you know, is also, of course, um, the fact that it was constantly marked by, you know, nationalist clashes, which obviously result in the creation of Israel and the Nakba in 1948. Uh, so, you know, we also sort of need to see this as a, a space in which there's multiple cult- cultural diplomacies that are vying for influence. Um, And in many ways, this is a sort of a nexus of a lot of worlds, uh, you know, in this period. Mm.
1: And it's also a a period where every type of actor actually understands the power of this cultural influence. So if you take, you know, very expected actors like the French... Uh, cultural diplomacy but also the British this is the moment where you have the creation of the British Council Uh, if you look into these archives uh, I'm working on that now and you realize that the cultural diplomacy is very present in the creation of the center but also the goal so, the idea is a very light one, the peace between Arab and Jews. I mean, via cultural diplomacy, it's, it's absolutely fascinating that in the mid of the 30s, facing this Arab revolt, and with all the mistakes from a diplomatic and political point of view, they reached this idea. And that you have people like Humphrey Bowman uh, writing very clearly that every population uh, communities writing has its language and so they cannot communicate and english is the language of peace so you have the the fact that they want to invest in this cultural diplomacy to reach political goal and i mean you know that from an italian point of view your chapter is uh, uh, looking into that very well, uh, with the French, it's exactly the same. So this why this is why, on top of everything, Sari uh, mentioned, uh, the period it was the missing gap for cultural diplomacy
2: in Palestine, of course. Let me move to the uh, first part of the book, which you already mentioned. Um, Now, the first part of the book is dedicated to the discussion of the indigenization of cultural diplomacy. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about what does this mean? And also, how did the various authors discuss and argue the indigenization of cultural diplomacy?
1: Yeah. Um, Many of them, not all of them, came to the conclusion that many indigenous actors at different level were very conscient about the impact of cultural negotiation and production. So the term itself was not very loaded in one specific historiography. I think it's important to say that. But we all came to the conclusion that it's totally unavoidable to have them at the center of the analysis. And I think many authors, and I will then, Sari, of course, will jump in to give you other uh, examples, but for most of the authors, the fact that indigenous actors were fundamental in how they were involved in re modeling rewriting uh, or having an influence on european actors remodeling and rewriting um, concept i mean designs uh, local communication uh, was our starting point for uh, in the indigenization of of, um, of our approach i think the the other elements. We all came even when trying you know to trace whether Swedish influence or Russian with the idea that these relations with indigenous actor were entangled at all level and so again you cannot you know overlook them. And I think the the third idea uh, was, that indigenous actors uh, question the legitimacy of the ruling uh, state, so the imperial Britain. So, with these three ideas, we started to discuss the indigenous uh, presence in our uh, analysis. That's, I would say first. Then I let Sari
3: <laughs> develop. And I, I think that the. Um... The other factor as well is kind of thinking about the sort of diversity of how culture functioned, you know, across many of the different chapters there. I mean, you know, we've got chapters about music, we've got chapters about education, we've got chapters about literature, we've got chapters about sort of cities and urban space, and we've got other chapters about clubs and associations. So I think, you know, this sort of gives us a really sort of um, wide field to think about how people were using cultural diplomacy and the forums in which they were using cultural diplomacy. And I think sometimes it, you know, it speaks to, um, you know, very conscious knowledge of the power of cultural diplomacy in the moment, as we see with Sharbal Nasif's work, you know, uh, where, uh, you know, Archbishop uh, Hajar from the Melkite community is, is actively kind of playing imperial powers off against one another. But other times it's, you know, it's much more subtle, you know. Um, so, for instance, uh, Sadia Zeus working on, you know, uh, modern Arabic novels and, 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 you know, these sort of Russian links, you know. I, I mean, this is a cultural field, obviously, but is this, you know, does this look like diplomacy from the outside or is this a sort of a reframing within a context to understand how these networks function? And, I, you know, I, I think it's, you know, in many ways um, this is kind of, the latter, you know, I'm not sure that um, people who were involved in production in culture at that particular moment would have understood their what they were doing within this context of cultural diplomacy. But I think that this sort of underscores why it's so important to be thinking about cultural diplomacy in such a broad way. Um, and you know, I, I, I think uh, you know, in many ways there's sort of moments of sort of cognizance, particularly around the idea of, you know, in in something like music or literature or other sort of fields like this, of sort of artistic authenticity, you know, particularly in the context of Maria Chiara's, uh, Rioli's article about, you know, music. You know, I think this is a moment where, uh, you know, a Palestinian musician is kind of using these structures of the Latin patriarchy to his own ends. But I also think that, part of being a Christian-Palestinian is kind of holding some sort of notional space of authenticity within this kind of much larger structure. Um, and so I think, you know, uh, as we kind of kind of go through a lot of those chapters, I think that there is just such an interesting kind of lineage of um, different things that are kind of going on culturally in this period that can be addressed through this framework but also... Um, yeah, you know, sort of reflect the sort of the ways in which actually, like anybody who was involved in the sort of practices of culture in that period, in some ways were kind of contesting something or another in some way, you know, so it sort of speaks to the politicization of daily life in many ways.
2: And I wanted to ask you something about uh, sort of the geography of cultural diplomacy, because I guess for readers and those who are interested in Palestine, it's it would be very obvious to say that Jerusalem was this place where, uh, you know, culture was produced and consumed. But obviously, Palestine is bigger than Jerusalem itself. And in fact, a number of chapters, I would say, look at uh, different parts of uh, of the country and particularly they're looking at AIFA for different reasons because it was a financial and commercial hub but more importantly because it hosted a large uh, christian population particularly the Melkites and i was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about uh, uh, the community itself and also the role of AIFA in the production and consumption of uh, European cultural diplomacy yeah
1: yeah yeah um, absolutely from a geographical point of view, Palestine is not only Jerusalem. So we were obsessed by that, and it's very good that you underline it. Uh, there are many cities and countryside we try to check, having in mind, of course, that these Arab Christians were more present in the cities than in the countryside, but in Galilee and in other uh, they were present in the countryside. So thank you for (laughs) this remark. Uh, Second, why this Melkite community? Um, The Catholic presence is very interesting in the sense that the the link with Europeans is very old, depending on different network, uh, cultural one. So the Melkites are very close at that time. Uh, to the French population for many different reasons. Other historians developed in the past. Um, And so via these uh, religious language, um, you know, old uh, network and professional ones, you have a population, so the Melkites are mainly living in Galilee uh, during this period, and very few of them only in in Jerusalem, obviously for uh, religious reasons, are developing their own agenda within the Catholic and, to a larger extent, uh, Christian uh, communities. They are also very much active into being and very proud of being and promoting Arab Christianity and in for many aspects they are opposing uh, arab orthodox but they are also very active in using uh, their cultural uh, influence to promote the idea that palestinians are very nationalist outside palestine so they send delegate they send bishop uh, one of the, the chapter is insisting on Bishop uh, Gregorius Hadjar, uh, but he was not the only one. They have um, the ability to quickly reach public uh, audience in France uh, and in all the francophone countries, so Switzerland, Belgium. With a wide network, of course, financially it's interesting, but they are also uh, exporting, you know, cultural goods via this uh, influence, and they are also promoting the idea that uh, Palestine is irremediably linked to Arabic as a language. So, um, in terms of cultural policy, it has a lot of implication. Because this means that all the religious training, all the schools for children, all the activities you may find around libraries, or around literary salons, etc., are uh, very much involved in different European uh, actors. And the other aspect of this uh, Melkite community is that they are able to have a real impact in the conceptual approach of what is to be a bilingual Palestinian at that time. And why it's important because you have, during the French mandate, many discussions about what is to be, you know, a Lebanese with trilingualism. Uh, Language is a way of thinking conceptually its identification. But you have the same with the Melkite community because of this idea that you can't be Palestinian without mastering perfectly Arabic, and that's an obvious setting in comparison with Lebanon at that time. But you also have to master other languages to promote the idea of the Palestinian uh, cause outside. And the Melkites are very clear about that. There are other aspects, of course, we can come back to that later.
0: slash NBN
3: fifty to get fifty
0: percent off.
3: I mean I think the other thing about a city like Haifa, um you know, there hadn't been borders uh in that region before, you know? Uh so we also need to sort of think about it culturally as being situated somewhere between Jaffa and Beirut, you know? Um, and obviously during the British Mandate period, uh, it undergoes a massive transformation, you know, particularly as the British invest in Haifa as a, a sort of a port city. And I think, you know, um, this has big cultural effects on that city uh, and it changes quite dramatically. And I think, you know, Mayan Hillel's uh, chapter, you know, discusses so many of these cultural changes, you know, whether it's beach culture, leisure culture, and this sort of you know the sort of the this sort of modern culture that develops in a city like that, but I I think it's it's uh, you know it's very interesting to be sort of thinking about the the sort of north as as this sort of space that's in between, um, you know, and it must have been a very strange thing for the people that lived in uh, these places at this time to experience suddenly having these borders in ways that that hadn't existed, you know, and certainly we see that with um, Shoban Nasif's article as well on the Melkites, you know, and this sort of severing of a community that that's, winds up on different sides of the border, even though it's still much more permeable at that point. It's not like people can't travel uh, like today, but it's, you know, I think it's it's this moment in which, um, you know, things are starting to shift uh, and I, uh, I I won't go into the Melkites, given that Keren has spoken so beautifully about them already. But I, I I do think um I do think that this sort of shape of the and the space of the North is a, in many ways it's a very culturally different area to Central Palestine and you know this space of Jaffa and Jerusalem you know the two larger cities and their kind of connection. And I would also say that that's also significantly different to what's happening in the south. You know, which is very deserty. You know, it's it's uh, you know. So we also need to be sort of thinking about how even within Palestine, you know, that there is definitely work to be done between how these different regions are interacting with one another, not to mention with the new neighbors that they find, you know, uh, around them in this period.
2: Let me move to the second part of, um, of the book, which looks at cultural diplomacy as a form of European hegemonic power. And uh, I was wondering how did Christians uh, and the various Christian communities in Palestine react and or relate uh, to this sort of form of European power?
1: That's a fundamental but very broad uh, question. Uh, I think probably what we can say is that there is no homogenous reaction. So you have you know, very different reaction, whether uh, where you situate yourself in the, you know, social configuration of Palestine. Uh, some traders are very involved in this pilgrimage. They are, you know, targeting very specific European audience. Uh, some are more interested by the education provided by uh, Europeans, Um Others are trying to build long-term links to people coming back every year to Palestine, whether within specific uh, religious communities uh, or not. Um, So I would say um, there is a wide range of um, reactions uh, and others simply do not care because they don't have, you know, any agency at their own level to interact directly with them or to benefit from that. Um, But it depends very much on which type of European network we look, which type of uh, part of the Palestinian society. So my overall uh, answer would be, it would be very dangerous to try to qualify in, one specific, you know, uh, answer, the various uh, reaction. The relations are very, well, there are entanglements at several levels. So also to say that there is an absence, you know, of uh, uh, cultural links between the two is uh, historical nonsense, of course. Uh, So the What we tried, and we continue to do so, so lately we had a conference on vocabularies of tourism to try to tackle these very specific aspects uh, last week. And even, you know, with tourism, you see the variety of answers. Um, It's probably interesting for our auditors to know that they, in this, you know, broader range of power dynamic, we see this entanglement and real interest, whether it's cultural, economic, political, at several levels, and the role of individuals, religious communities, and parastatal organization is involved uh, constantly during the, the mandate period. So the notion of encounter is multifaceted, and influenced at several levels these uh, Palestinian uh, Christians and, well, Palestinian society in a more general level, of course.
3: I um, I mean, as Karen said, I think there are so many diverse approaches, it's hard to kind of, uh, and would be a historical to kind of try and categorize them, but I think... I think we can also sort of think about tendencies, you know, Um, and I think, you know, there is tendencies for education. There are tendencies for scientific exploration. There are tendencies for, uh, you know, pilgrimage, you know. But, But again, you know, we're talking about a whole diversity of European states and that's before discussing the rest of the world, you know, whether it's, North America or more about Palestinian relationships to other parts of the global South or, or, or whatever like that, you know, so it's, you know, I mean, I think it is such a huge field and I think there is um, still quite a lot of work to be done within it um, in terms of thinking through some of this sort of stuff. But I, I I do also think, um, you know, one of the things to kind of consider in terms of your question is, 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 it is how some of these fields interact, you know, and I think when we look at some of the, you know, um, the sort of the, the, the contexts of the chapters, you know, we, we do have actors like uh, the Vatican or uh, the Imperial Orthodox Palestine Society, or, uh, you know, a number of other kind of groupings who are involved in various, you know, multiple activities at the same time. So I think we can also be thinking about these actors as being involved in multiple aspects of cultural diplomacy. And and certainly, you know, with something like the, uh, the Russian Imperial Orthodox Palestine Society, I mean, uh, you know, they were becoming inactive by the beginning of the British mandate and the sort of you know political changes in Russia but we do see them engaged with education with pilgrimage and facilitating Russian pilgrimage as well as also you know being involved in these scientific endeavors and I think you know in some ways we need to be thinking about how, different aspects of cultural diplomacy coming from a particular country or coming from a particular place interact and interweave with one another and what that what sort of effects that has on the Indigenous populations, what effects that has on, you know, those foreign populations, how this connection changes things, you know. And I think one of the things that um, we do sort of tend to see is that, 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 that um, you know, there is... Uh, even in the chapters which are exploring a particular country's effects on Palestine, we still see transformations within that original country and in terms of their perceptions. And I think this is a very interesting point to be thinking about.
2: And this brings me to uh, the the third part of the book, where there are plenty of very interesting stories. Um, So, In the third part of the book, the, the contributors essentially looked at a number of countries uh, you know starting with uh, Greece Russia Italy France Sweden and this list is not obviously exhaustive there are many others and and i was wondering if you can give us a sense perhaps a short summary of the work of these countries in Palestine and their
3: interactions with local Christians. Um, yeah, look, I mean, I think um, uh, you know, uh, as, as I said, you know, uh, something like Laura Gerd's chapter on uh, on the uh, Imperial Orthodox Society. You know, um, they, they're sort of taking this very multi pronged approach, and uh, and in some ways, we also see that with the you know the Austrian policy that. Um, Barbara Heider-Wilson discusses, you know, I think, you know, uh, on the one hand the Austrian hospice is set up as this kind of, you know, vehicle for pilgrimage, but on the other hand they're also kind of using it to kind of... Uh, 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 effectively raise the profile of Austria and the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 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 Palestine, you know. And I think you know, in some ways, uh, your own chapter, Roberto. You know, I think it, it, you know, it's a very interesting chapter because it's one of the it's one of the chapters that deals with failure of cultural diplomacy in many ways. And I think that this is you know, this is not a story that we often think about. Like, how does how does you know? I think we tend to want to sort of highlight. Um, these tales of kind of, you know, successes, but in many ways thinking about the ways in which cultural diplomacy doesn't function in certain instances actually tells a very interesting story of connection and disconnection in another way, you know? Uh, And I I really, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, sort of, certainly the sort of the failures of some of the propaganda, uh, you know, coming out of uh, fascist Italy at the time and, the, you know, sort of radio stations and the kind of, you know, inconsistencies of, you know, this sort of operation, you know, it's I mean, in some ways it, it, it tells a story that's uh, 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 as much about Italy's kind of uh, colonial failure as it does about, you know, the communities in Palestine that were obviously very heavily influenced by Italy in other ways, you know. Um, and I think um, you know, uh, well, you know, sort of uh, things like Inga Marie's uh, chapter on the Swedish school. You know, I think this is another sort of interesting kind of chapter that kind of really deals with kind of uh, a, a very sort of large scale of kind of like um, interaction in a very micro setting of a school. You know. I mean, the way she talks about uh, among other, you know, among all of the other educational policy, one of the things that I found particularly interesting of that chapter was kind of discussing issues of fundraising uh, and how that kind of drew communities together, you know, the production of objects in Palestine, handcrafts and things like that that were sold to Sweden, the importation of Swedish furniture to kind of, you know, uh, create this sort of idealized Swedish kind of space, you know, the sort of the postcards, the quaint Swedish postcards that were used to sort of, uh, you know, um, advertise the school. You know, I mean, I think I think this kind of really, you know, it's it, in some ways it's a very um, it's a very warm story that story, but it also kind of looks at the ways in which kind of uh, you know culture can be transported, the way it can be repackaged, the way it can kind of be consumed and even sold you know <laughs> i think it's it's quite a you know in some ways there's some very um very interesting pieces in that 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 um uh that chapter
2: i was a, a bit curious about the question of uh, uh competition i mean obviously all of these uh, foreign actors competed uh, but essentially for the same kind of population. And I was wondering if this uh, raised tension between these countries, if there was some sort of a agreement on the grounds. How did they deal with the question of, you know, competing with each other in a relatively small space?
3: Yeah, look, I, I mean, I think this is a very interesting question. And I think, you know, we really see that best in the educational arena, actually. You know, Um I mean, we can see it in lots of different spaces, but, the, I mean, the rate at which new schools were being set up, the educational facilities that they were being equipped with, the languages that were being taught, the ways in which, you know... Um, uh, parents were kind of seeing education as a marketplace in in this period, you know, um, and I think the ways in which, um, you know, people were kind of thinking about what languages are useful to them, you know, not just on a community level, I mean, uh, you know, but, uh, but as part of a sort of a modern mercantile marketplace. I mean, the other thing that's very interesting about a lot of these institutions is that they might start up with um, – you know, specific focuses on uh, a given community, and, and certainly we see that with the Russians addressing Orthodox or, you know, uh, Catholic education. The French, French and Italian Catholic education systems being geared towards Catholic Palestinians, etc. But we also start to see that these um, these communal boundaries, you know, they 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 get very porous very quickly. You know. Uh, and certainly, you know, with Inga Marie talking about the Swedish school, you know, uh, I, I mean, they're, they're not solely taking Christian students, you know, they're very much advertising across the board, they're taking in Muslim students, they're, you know, they market towards Jewish students, but there are other Jewish structures, which generally Jewish students kind of went into. So it's, you know, I mean, it's a very interesting thing thinking about this you know, this context of education. But, of course, the other thing with education that comes alongside it is is language, you know, and I think, uh, you know, this was one of the successes of the Russian education system, for instance, is that it, from the outset they were teaching in Arabic, so it was sort of quite popular, uh, you know, whereas I think other, you know, countries were kind of more uh, interested in kind of guarding their language. Um, and so, so actually there's also sort of, you know, um, these kind of funny relationships that go back and forth between, you know, what is useful. You know, do, do do You know, should my kid learn French? Should my kid learn Swedish? Should my should my kid learn Russian? You know, I'm sure that these are all sorts of sort of questions that must be occurring to parents as they were, you know, dealing with these kind of questions of enrollment.
2: Well, in a sense, it shows uh, that Palestine was a marketplace for education where parents uh, had had an opportunity to choose, uh, you know, sort of a different kind of lines of education. Uh, Obviously that had a, social, economic, and I would say also political costs, because obviously deciding where to send the kids to school uh, was not a neutral uh, choice, but essentially makes Palestine sort of a, a great place for uh, educating children, uh, I would say. Is, would you, would it be the same assessment, yours or the other authors?
3: Uh, look, I mean, I think... Um... I think if you were of a certain class, it was a very great place to be educated, you know. Uh, I mean, obviously there's an Ottoman kind of government public school system that had been in existence uh, before the First World War, and and that continued under the British mandate afterwards. But I I do think, you know, for these urban middle classes and upper middle classes and elites, you know, I think in these urban settings, I I think it very much was a marketplace. And I think... um, I think, you know, uh, certainly sort of knowing people who'd been through that system, you know, and um, seeing the education that they received, you know, I, 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 I think we can conclude that <laughs> that it was a very successful strategy to influence, you know, um, Palestinian communities through an education system, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose, you know, I think about some of the institutions that still exist today uh, in various guises like... Uh, uh you know the uh the Fres college in jerusalem or the Schneller school or you know it's i mean they've had continuity and uh, longevity and they're still seen as quite um uh, uh, uh prestigious schools to send your children to you know
2: i have one more question and it's very much about the epilogue or the conclusion now the epilogue was written uh, by Idir Wise, and i just wanted to mention him because uh, he used to be a student of mine, so it was actually very nice to see him growing into a scholar and, you know, being able to sort of write the conclusion of this very fascinating volume. And I was wondering if you can give us a sense of uh, what conclusions have been reached. Uh, and I'm using the plural because I suppose there's not only one way of looking at this volume, uh, you know, given all of the various chapters that have been written in this uh, uh, edited work.
3: Yeah, look, I think um, it is, uh, epilogue is, is, you know, it's a wonderful piece of writing in terms of trying to capture the enormous field that we've tried to cover in a single book. (laughs) And as I said before, you know, I think there is so much more work to be done on this field. Um, But I think, you know, he he did such a great job of sort of thinking about like secularisation of kind of... um, various kind of uh, cultural diplomacy apparatuses, thinking about like this con- Cold War context that was starting to develop, you know, in, you know, after nineteen seventeen, thinking about you know the ways in which you know uh, Arab contestation of the colonial ambitions in the region kind of functioned, and he was doing this not just um, not, not not just with respect to you know British mandate Palestine, but also the French mandates. So I think he's kind of thinking, you know, it's a very nice regional approach to. Um, uh, to to sort of cap the book off, uh, at the end there. But, you know, uh, I, I mean, conclusions. Yeah. It's, I I mean, I think this is, uh, an edited volume with a lot of contributors and, you know, it's the fruit of a collective effort, you know? Um, and so I suppose, each chapter has their own conclusion and their own, you know, their own sort of ideas on on, on what, um, you know, what they've sort of dealt with. But I think, I mean, it, if we're sort of starting to kind of unpick, you know, uh, some of the themes that really kind of come out of it, I mean, I, I, I think it sort of buttresses some of the, you know, I mean, I, I think there's always been this idea of sort of cultural spheres of influence of the colonial powers in Palestine. And I think that this really undermines the simplicity of, of this sort of assumption that, um, that people just kind of fell willy nilly into a sphere of influence and uh, functioned within that. I think it kind of breaks down the idea that, um, that, 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 that actually, uh, you know, this sort of Catholic versus Orthodox versus, you know, sort of what, you know, I mean, I think it undermines a lot of these sort of these simplistic notions of the way we see religious affiliation functioning in a sort of a colonial context and in a transnational context. And I think part of what's so interesting about that is that it shows that actually, even within communities, there often wasn't a consensus, you know. Um, So I think there's, yeah. I, I mean, we might have this situation of kind of shifting from an Ottoman millet system into this kind of British mandate period. And I'm not saying that communal identity isn't important, but it's it's something that's also kind of part of a process of uh, change. And I think, you know, we see the rise of Arab nationalism in a very concerted way in this period, and I think, you know, in some ways that has very interesting interactions with communal identity and, uh, you know, in some ways that sort of bolsters uh, and in other ways it also undermines and I think it creates new series of relations and also a new series of, uh, you know, conflicts. Um, So I think, you know, part of this sort of, interest in cultural diplomacy as a framework for thinking about about the British mandate period is also about trying to complicate and trying to understand this this very messy tangled period and trying to, you know, in some ways untangle some of the tangle to understand entanglements.
2: You know? <laughs> These were Karen Sanchez and Sarizana Niri Editors of European Cultural Diplomacy and Arab Christians in Palestine, 1918-1948, Between Contention and Connection, published by Palgrave Macmillan, available as open access. Karen and Sari, thank you so much.
3: Thank you so much, Roberto.